Hello and welcome to another Ulster Rugby Roundup podcast. I'm Richard Mulligan. I'm just uh, guesting to start this one off on behalf of Gareth Hanna. Hello, Hello Gareth. I'm here. And of course my good friend Jonathan Bradley. How are you Jonathan? I'm good Richard, thank you for asking. And I shall now happily hand over to Gareth to get things rolling. Please do, because if you keep going then you'll ask me questions and then I have to have <laughs> some sort of knowledge or opinion and I have neither. So uh, yeah, good. That would be a good way of turning things around some week. Oh, it'd be tough. Could feel the, the cold sweat coming on already. <laughs> Happy to take over uh, now that the introduction that I hate doing is over. Thank you for that, Richard. So, yeah, of course, well. uh, we have Ireland's game against Italy. Uh, game loosely, that word used very loosely. And then Ulster's trip. No, they're at home to Cardiff, weren't they? On Friday, and Richard, you, you should still have you should have kept going for a while yet before I butchered this. <laughs> so we'll begin with uh, Ireland's win over Italy then, and well, obviously only one person that we're going to spend most of this podcast talking about, given that we spent the last four years building up to this moment. And but before we turn into the Michael Lowry roundup, we shall begin with that law. Jonathan, Richard has me well warned to call the law, not a rule. But I assume, given when the referee was explaining to the Italy captain why his team had to play the rest of the match with 13 players, and the Italy captain was basically going, are you serious? Is this actually happening? So I assume if he didn't really know what was going on, probably most of the fans in the stadium didn't know what was going on. And maybe some of our listeners uh, are still just a little bit unclear as to the ins and outs of the rules. So, Law, sorry. So I'll pass over to you now, Jonathan, and you can uh, can you give us a little bit of a, an explanation as to just what happened and why it happened? Well, I would say that most listeners of this podcast are actually wholly familiar with the law. Oh, yeah. Because okay, it's sorry. only 11 months since it happened in an Ulster game, in which three of the guys that were involved on... Uh, Sunday were actually playing. And so at the very least, some people in the stadium should have been aware of what was going on. Now, the general sense around me anyway, and the press box obviously has fans sort of either side, and then even some people in the press box, there was a sense that it was not wholly clear to everybody what was happening. But um, essentially what it boils down to is to avoid the type of chicanery that would allow for teams to negate scrums by faking injuries. There is this law in place that means if you are the team that forces uncontested scrums through red cards, contact injuries that are not HIAs or blood injuries, that you have to lose another man as well. Now, obviously, Italy didn't seem particularly aware of this to the point that it seemed like it was that the referee actually choosing which player had to go off for them because they didn't yeah. seem wholly aware of um, of what was happening. And obviously there is a language barrier there as well, obviously, because it's uh, a Georgian and an Italian trying to speak English to each other. So no, neither player nor referee speaking in their first language. And you, you mentioned the thing about the fans. And I think this is interesting because as part of a wider point, and it's not... The main point, I don't think, given that a Six Nations game became such a non-contest, and we'll, I think we'll go on to talk later about um, the idea that this might not be good for health and safety moving forward. But just to touch on this at first, if you pay 
90 euro for a ticket or 120 euro for a ticket, as it can be sometimes uh, in the Aviva. You're asked to pay an extra 10 euro for a ref mic. I don't think the ref mics are. I don't think that money goes to the RFU. I might be wrong, but um, the fact of the matter is, if you're paying that amount of money to be in the stadium and to not have it, to not have the thing explained to you, yeah. Personally, I don't think it's good enough because I like. I know we go back to the NFL a lot just because um, you love just it because of me, just because of me it. watching it a lot, but uh, <laughs> and people probably tire of that. But like, I do, I do. <laughs> <laughs> We're only five I get educated from it. I'm glad of it. <laughs> uh, but it's not like it's impossible to mic the referee when he's already mic'd for TV. Have him stand there, press a button, and have his voice play over the PA. Like, it's not that the technology exists, yeah. is what I'm yeah. saying. They have it in the NFL. So to have 51,000 people, and I don't know how many were wholly au fait with the rules, but uh, you've got me out of now. Wholly au fait with the law. <laughs> Um, but purely anecdotally around me where I was, it didn't seem like everybody was a sizable percentage, let's say weren't. And that really knocks your viewing experience and would lead people to think that you would have more of an idea of what was going on if you were at home watching it on TV. Which you would have. Um, Obviously it didn't help with the, the spectacle, Richard, of what from the outset was probably not going to be an overly keenly fought contest anyway. From then on, there was absolutely nothing of contest about it, which we'll get on to a little bit later. But just on this law, we have a question from Mark Dempsey. He asks, what are your thoughts on the rule, Mark? Tut, 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 it's a law that effectively ruined the Ireland versus Italy game. Should they consider changing it? So, Richard, what do you think of it? Obviously, Johnny's explained why the rules in place to stop a team saying, oh, our hookers actually, we're getting beat at the scrum, our hookers actually injured now, and we don't have another one, so we can't have any more scrums. Sorry, guys. But uh, yeah. what, what do you think about them? Um, the, are, there, are there cons of it that, that you see, and do you think the rules should be changed? Yeah, I suppose it's like a lot of laws in rugby. They are there to safeguard teams, manipulating them in their in, in their favour. And it has happened in the past. But And it brings into this whole discussion about red cards in rugby. If you get a red card in the 10th minute of a, of a match, that has a very big burn on how, how that game is likely going to finish. And this was exacerbated again. I think you have to remember, it was foul play. The Italian player left the referee with no choice. And it just so happened that he was the replacement in a specialist position. And it's a health and safety aspect. So it was unfortunate the way that that happened. And again, as Jonathan said, I knew straight away what was going to happen because I'd had the experience of being at Kingspan Stadium for Ulster v Zebra. And I was kind of, when it happened that time, I was going, what's going on here? How's this working out? And I did feel sorry for the French or for the Italian number eight who was just told by the referee, you're off, away you go. He wasn't, he wasn't given a choice. His face, was a, his face was a picture. But it's like the discussion they've had around red cards in rugby and they brought in those experimental variations to if a player is red carded, you can then replace replace him in 20 minutes time with a different player and that type of thing. But again, then, does that mean that you go out and maliciously, if, if, if Jonathan Bradley is the star player on a team and Richard Mulligan's a dirty hanging on the other side, I'm going to take him out. Okay, I'm going to get red carded, but I'm only going to get off for 20 minutes, but they've taken their star man out. So yeah, they're there for a reason. But if you imagine a World Cup final and that incident happens oh, at the same time, 
at the same time as it happens, it's foul play, it's a red card, there's no question about it, it's going to ruin a World Cup final. And Jonathan's talking about you might pay 100 euros or whatever and your 10, 10 euros for your, your refs, mate. You may have paid 2,500 euros for a ticket at the World Cup final and whatnot. So they probably do need to look at it and change it a bit. Are props able to play in any front row position? Um, do they need to, to maybe look at being able to put props into that situation. It probably does need to be reviewed, but in the interest of fairness, what what way do you do it? Um, do you have extra players in the squad in the background? I don't know. You probably can't do that. You have a 23 man squad. That's that's it. Do you do you bring six extra water boys with you, two of them who are specialist hookers or specialist props? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it does need to be reviewed because if you do get yeah. a situation in a real key contest I think it was Argentina in a World Cup semi-final had a red card and I mean a red card in rugby depending on when it happens I mean okay Italy went down to 12 men for the last five minutes of the game the game is over at that stage but if it happens with an hour left it, it will have a big impact on how that result yeah. is going to be John Richard touches you have is like I said this sorry this no, no. situation where the law is in place to guard against as you said Gareth feigned injuries to depart an opposition scrum if one ha- one team is getting the upper hand there, maybe getting a lot of penalties, getting a lot of territory through that. But like nobody's going to get a red card in order to yes. negate the opposition scrum, if you know what I mean. So exactly, yeah. When the red card comes second, I think it, like I think it's a relatively simple flip. Like you know, if the red card comes second, and I think Kieran Crowley. Um, the Italian coach comes out of this with a lot of credit because he was the one really stressing the fact that you can't blame the referee here. And I th- I did see some people saying it was the referee's fault. Like there was nothing the referee could do. That was to the letter of the law. He did everything right. The letter. And Kieran Crowley also came out and said, I wasn't willing to put my props in danger by putting them into a position that they haven't played at this level before. And yeah, the amount of force that goes through an international rugby scrum is incredible. Obviously, not having been there myself, but <laughs> it, like even just reading an interview with Furlong at this before the Six Nations, it was something that he was talking about. It was like you cannot describe the amount of force that goes through these things, yeah. basically into your shoulders and neck. So it is dangerous if you're not used to that. Yeah. And even the move from prop to hooker is a big change. I know we've seen Eric O'Sullivan do it for Ulster this season, but like that would be my concern that in the future, having seen this and having witnessed the impact that it can have, that a prop would be more likely to say, oh no, I can't do it, and then end up getting injured playing at hooker. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's it's a health and safety concern almost. Yeah. And I have some experience. I mean, I'm, I used to play at hooker. All the same. Oh. I know, yeah, well, that, it was back in the day when you had a wee hooker that could hang on two big props and swing his legs, that type of thing, you know, before <laughs> the French brought in three big brutes to the front row and changed it. But but, but even at, even at schoolboy and club uh, coach and rugby level, um, as a hooker, in the front row, you are you are the first point of contact between, yeah. the, between the two sides. And Jonathan's right, even at that, the amount of pressure that's going through your body at that time is, yeah. it, 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 I mean, you, you you do feel it, um, and it's it's not <laughs> it's not a nice place to be sometimes, you know, especially if you're getting bombarded. And um, you know, Italy probably would have looked at their scrum as being one of their strengths. Mm-hmm. 
yeah. in the Six Nations Championship, you know. So they lost a big advantage by what had happened. Yeah. But, but Jonathan, just to touch on that health and safety, it is a health and safety issue. And it's not just a matter of, as Jonathan says, you can move the prop across. Eric, Eric O'Sullivan may have played hooker at some time, so he would have a wee bit of experience of it, but it's but it is a specialist position. So the, the prop that came on threw you into the line, I did make you think that this guy's done this before. Yeah, yes. <laughs> it wasn't the Joe Marler against Scotland situation. I, I was just gonna say I was just gonna say it wasn't Joe Marler, no. <laughs> yeah, so obviously it is such a, a health and safety concern, first and foremost, I suppose. But as well, Richard, that's a really good point that you made about the threat of this. Ruining a, a high-profile match like a, a World Cup final or something, and I suppose the fact maybe that this has happened in a Six Nations match uh, might just spark World Rugby into a bit of action. Having a look at it, it'll be interesting to see. And I suppose, um, while obviously didn't want to see any game the Six Nations ruined, if you were to pick one in uh, Ireland against Italy, might not have been a bad one because realistically, I mean, Ireland were going to stuff them anyway. But. Uh, the, the one man that we obviously have to talk about, Michael Lowry, we have been on about him in this podcast since we began, really, and about how good he was going to be. And finally, the world knows that Michael Lowry is a superstar. Two tries on his Ireland debut. At, uh, I was going to say it couldn't have gone much better. It could have gone better because he could have had a hat-trick. Um, so, Jonathan, we have a couple of questions in uh, before we get to those. It was a huge performance, wasn't it, from, from Michael and... Uh, exactly what what we probably expected from him yeah just selling plenty of what we've seen him do it also or do it also over the last um two months really since he came in from um with will addison been injured moved back into 15 for that uh for that leinster game and he's been doing it consistently ever since just causing trouble with his footwork obviously we didn't really see him tested defensively we didn't really see him tested uh test in the air or anything like that so it was a good game for him in the sense that it really played into his strengths i think but if you're looking at um how well he was able to put his hand up for england and scotland in the in the weeks ahead perversely you maybe wanted to see him tested yeah a bit more in the other aspects of his game yeah and Richard, that's a, a point raised by Stuart Martin as well, just points out that Michael obviously wasn't really tested at all. And just that point that Johnny brings up there, Richard, you think as a consequence that will count against Mike when it when it comes to uh, getting get more game time for Ireland? Yeah, it's, it's a pity the way the, the thing found out. Right? I mean, I think he, t- he ended up taking one high ball, which he took very, very well. Um, but he was just, I think he... I think he smiled from the moment he walked onto the pitch to the moment he left it. I mean, I, I never saw a guy smile as much. He was enjoying himself, which was great. No, it was great. It was a great debut for him. And I suppose I owe him a wee bit of an apology because I never thought I would see him get to this level. Um, and I maybe, maybe have said that on the podcast, but I'm yeah. quite happy to. I'm quite happy to correct that and say I'm delighted for him. I would love to see him get the opportunity again against England. Um, he probably won't. Um, I'm not sure how. I think he played better than Keenan had done in the first two games. I would like to have seen him more defensively, just to see how he would, how he would have coped that way. But I think his whole his whole performance overall was was brilliant. Um, I um, I think, but I think the lack of the lack of exposure throughout the game will maybe count against him, and he probably won't even get on the bench for the England game because of the way that Farrell have to look at how he how he picks his bench and uh, Larry 
Well, I suppose he could look at him. Could he play him in a second position? I don't know. I don't think so. But look, he certainly didn't do himself any harm at all. He probably, if Josh van der Fleer hadn't have been so predominant in the tackle count, I think Larry might have even got man of the match if he had scored that hat trick. Fair played him for passing the ball. Um, we all went, oh, um, what did you pass it for? He should have went, but fair played him. Um, he could have got man of the match and then you would have been asking different questions. Would he get the opportunity against England? That? You know what? Farrell went with Carberry again, which was great to see. He'll probably go with Saxon against England. There's no doubt about that. Um, I suppose there's still a championship to play for here very much. Yeah. Still alive. So I would love to see him getting the run out again. And personally, I would actually give it to him. Um, but uh, unfortunately, I'm not Andy Farrell. I think he, just, he, definitely, he definitely will play and the green jersey in the future again. And Johnny Richard brings us on to, to that point of the hat-trick chance. LJ O'Brien asks, should he have given that pass? And I know, uh, wasn't it at Farrell himself that sort of was, uh, you know, spoke very well about that and what that says about Michael as a person and all the rest of it, which is no doubt true. I mean, to give up an opportunity like that for the sake of, of somebody else and for the sake of the team, even when it didn't really matter, probably says it all about his character. At the same time, though, Johnny, to play a devil's advocate a little bit, as Richard says, in that situation, do you need to be nearly a little bit ruthless there and go, no, well, I'm taking this for myself because if I do get this hat-trick, then that does catapult me a little bit. Um, And, you know, who knows what that could lead to? Do you think maybe, well, obviously... uh, all of those selfless traits are very commendable. Do you think, is there a little bit of a requirement to be selfish at that top level in, in a moment like that? Yeah, it's interesting because you said both selfish and ruthless there, and I think they're two different things. Like I, It would have been selfish to go himself, I think. I don't know that it would be ruthless. I think it's more ruthless to... Uh, clinically work the opportunities that you create to maximize oh no well that's that's fair but as, try. i suppose i mean ruthless more in terms of the battle for selection so ruthless for i'm looking out for myself here and being ruthless with your teammates and going now i'm looking out for me now in this instance it's interesting because like as we've noted numerous times on this podcast there is a massive massive difference between rugby players playing at international level and their mindset and the mindset of me sat on my living room sofa here talking about um but i don't know i don't think so i think the best thing to do in any situation is what maxim i'm sorry the thing that would impress a coach most in that situation is to do what is of maximum benefit to the team i do think that if you wanted to you could make the argument that purely because of the ball being in your hand and then the ball not being in your hand, where is the bigger chance for something to go wrong? And it, the answer is the ball not being in your hand, mm. possibly. So while Farrell said it was a 1,000% nailed on that James Lowe was going to score once he threw the pass, you could make the argument that it wasn't because I think James Lowe did actually have to stretch for it. And if the try hadn't come, then you really would have had questions being asked of why did you not go for it yourself um again with all usual caveats about me not being a high-end sportsman of any kind i certainly would have been trying to score the hat trick myself because that's just the cut of me but <laughs> michael laurie is a, a far better rounded individual than i am so <laughs> clearly clearly no, it's a... i think it was a shame i think it was a shame the way the game 
had gone with, down to the 13 players as it did because we probably didn't get the chance for everybody to see Michael Lurie's total skill set. Yeah. I think that's a real that's a real shame. I mean, he was sharp. Um, he scored two tries in his debut. I think Hugo Keenan, if I'm right, also made his debut against Italy two years ago and might have scored two tries in the wing. I'm not I'm not 100 percent sure about that. But I also um, could have had a hat trick, but it was uh chalked off by the TMS. That's right. That's right. So it's a pity that we didn't get him to see his to, to see his full skill set in operation. And I really think that his his uh, debut could have been even bigger than it was mm. had it not had the game not gone the way it went. Yeah, no, it definitely is a shame. But uh, I think there's there's little doubt that there will be more opportunities for him. And fingers crossed, those will come in the remainder of this Six Nations. I think, like yourself, Richard, if any of us were Andy Farrell, then we would have Michael Lowry selected. But whether or not that will happen, we will debate them next week's podcast a little more, I suppose. So. Another aspect of Michael Lowry, of course, Jonathan, as you've written about today in your column, is that every other time there's been any sort of landmark moment in Michael Lowry's career, right from school's level, it has been followed with a question of, ah, but how far can he get being the size that he is? And as you've written today, maybe now that he's done it, for Ireland, it's time just to leave that in the past and accept that the sky really is the limit for this guy. I think so. It's just it's something that annoys me not so much with Larry, but in general, because rugby always talks about being this game for all shapes and all sizes, and yet you have somebody like Mike Larry who, from let's say 2015, right, was the first time that we sort of became aware of him in that um, inside, and you still had people then saying, "Ah, oh, but you know, is he going to be big enough for the next level?" Blah 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 blah. And it just goes on and on and on and on and on. Like the best winger in the world is five foot seven. Yeah. You know, Damian McKenzie's five foot nine. He's playing for the All Blacks. Like I, and I think this goes for not just height, but all things, you know, like there's just this focus on what players do, and what, but more of a focus on what they don't do. It's like the same with McCluskey to a degree. Like, and in both cases, I don't think this is, founded but like there is this idea say that McCluskey can't pass the ball anyone who watches Stuart McCluskey is like he's a wholly effective rugby player yeah but instead of focusing on what he does do well it's like oh but can he pass the ball I think that he can pass the ball this is just an example that I'm using here Mm -hmm. and if you're going to boost that you're a game for everyone a game for all sizes then how can it be that there's this narrative surrounding a player who has made his Ireland debut. He is long listed for European Player of the Year because of what he's done in the top club competition in the world. And we're sat here being like, oh, but is he big enough to play against England? Is he big enough to play against uh, South Africa? And like, uh, t- to be fair to Andy Farrell, like Andy Farrell, who knows something about being tough enough to play uh, to play rugby, having one man of steel in uh, rugby league, and he at whatever age he is in six foot four is still an intimidating sized man. Mm-hmm. It's like, I would hate to play against Michael Laurie because <laughs> he would be incredibly difficult for me to, for a man of my size to tackle. So it's like, yeah. and obviously, you know, successive coaches in Dan McFarland and Andy Farrell have backed him now to play 15 in important games for them. So it's just like, I personally, I just find it a tired narrative. 
more than anything else. Uh, but that comes from having sat in lots of interviews with Mike and having him have to answer the same questions over and over again or be sat in interviews with other people and have them ask the same thing over and over and over again. Like the guy has lots of attributes <laughs> and yet it seems like it's all boiled down to the fact that he's five foot seven. <laughs> yeah. I think the thing about Saturday's game or Sunday's game too was it was probably an opportunity for Mike Larry to make a statement and show what he's all talking about. I can play this game, no problem. Give me a, just give me a chance. And I think if you like, if if the jury was out on will Mike Larry be able to to hack it at, at, at international rugby, <laughs> he's answered. He's answered. He answered all his critics. And um, as Jonathan says, I hope. It's put to bed now. Fingers crossed, as you say, it's, uh, the debate is over. And uh, what we've told but you all... It's definitely all... not over, by the way. Like, it will surface again. Well, of course it will. They play a bigger team that's not Italy, but... The... Uh, yeah, that's very true. Yeah, very true. Whenever he has led Ireland to World Cup glory, the debate will be over. <laughs> You have to ask Justin Colby if him leading South Africa to the World Cup stops Wouldn't the <laughs> The debate will never be over. Okay, then. <laughs> Mike just needs to make sure he positions himself correctly in the lineup when they're doing the anthem, so that he's not between two second rows or a number <laughs> the side of number eight. I know there's, I know there's not too many small players in the pitch, but he needs to kind of get himself positioned somewhere where he's not going to look so prominently small. <laughs> I can't remember who Craig Casey was in between, but Craig Casey clearly hadn't learned that lesson uh, no. on Sunday. I can't remember who it was, but it was like. Basically, it's just the camera- uh, <laughs> an, an inverted pyramid down yeah. to uh, down to Craig Casey. It's that cameraman. It's the cameraman who's walking down the lens nightmare. They kind of go and oh, <laughs> where'd the- oh right, we've got to drop the camera to get the guy in the shot. So, Michael, I obviously wasn't the only Ulsterman on the pitch for a change. There were four of them in all, incredibly. After only James Hume and uh, Ian Anderson playing in the first couple of games. Michael, the only one to start, but Herring, Treadwell and Hume all came off the bench. Richard, Julian Foon, apparently I got the second name right the last time I said it, but I can't remember how I said it that time. So apologies if this is wrong, but Julian Foonness or Foons or something, I'm not sure. Uh, Maybe you can let me know. But uh, asks, have Ulster players done enough to make a mark for themselves in the bigger game? So what about, we've obviously talked about Michael at length there, but what about... Rob, Kieran, and James Hume. Richard, obviously, we should throw in the news now that Herring, Lowry, and Treadwell are the three players that have remained in Ireland's what's a 27-man training camp this week, while Balakun, Henderson, Hume, and Timoney have all been released for Ulster. So what what can what do you see in terms of Ulster involvement for, for that England game? I mean, Herring, Herring to me was unlucky because I, I personally thought that he, he should have been involved from the outside. I know he had the injury then as well, but um, I think the players, there's so little to pick between the players that um, it can be a tough call sometimes. And I suppose if Leinster running all around them as they normally do, then it's it's hard to go past. They do shine that bit better, but I thought Herring, I thought Herring did okay when he came on. Um, he, he does what he, he, he does exactly what it says in the tin for him. Um, and, you would like to think that he, well, he obviously will be involved in the England game. Um, yeah. Probably, probably. He might get the start this time. Um, I think the Italy game falling the way it did in the championship afforded Farrell the opportunity to say, right, I can give guys who I want to look at maybe with 
the World Cup in mind next year because we Ireland, I mean, Ireland put 48 points on Italy last year. They put 50 odd points, I think it was 50 points on them two years ago in the, in the Six Nations. So you were expecting them to win with the bonus point anyway. And I suppose if, if you had had hindsight and saw how things were going to go, you might have actually included a few more players. Um, but I think Herring, Herring will be in with a, a very good chance of possibly starting. Um, James Hume, um, he came on for a blood injury from Ring Rose. And I thought he, again, he accounted for himself well. Um, I suppose that by the way the structure of the game was at times, it, it was hard maybe to get involved. It, it, players are players aren't used playing against thirteen players, and they're and you sometimes think there's space there, and you look up and there's actually not not the amount of space that's there, and you have to actually work to create that space with only having five players in the back line. Um, so, I mean, we know what James Hume can do. He probably. If you look back to the selection for the French game, are you saying, will James Hume be included at all? Um, probably not. Probably not. Um, unfortunately, Treadwell came in. We know what Kieran can do. He's got his critics out there, but I thought he did well. And to score a try, again, he with, if, if Henderson's fit, and it looks like he's going to be, I don't think Kieran will feature in the match day 23 either. I think... And we mentioned Mike Lurie again. I don't think he'll feature. I would love to see him. I think he should be allowed to get another goal, but uh, I don't think he will. Herring probably has the best chance of them all. Yeah. Okay. So on Hume there, Jonathan, we have a question from Big Jim who asked, does Ireland's system suit James Hume? He never seemed to get the ball in a position to utilise his footwork and skills that we see so often for Ulster. Uh, that's an interesting one. Um, we did sort of, I thought we saw the sort of, flash of the footwork that we're so used to with Ulster in that sort of first five minute spell when he came on for Gary Ringrose. Uh, I think the main thing for um for Hume is going to be just getting a getting a start. You know, we've seen him come on twice now in the Six Nations when the game's sort of been long gone. And um I do also think the part of Hume's game is the ability to create something from nothing. And it happens in sort of small bursts with that footwork that we talked about of making an extra half meter or an extra meter on nearly every carry just through that footwork but also in the instance where he just sort of explodes into life and makes that line break similar to what we saw against uh, against the dragons but even you know in the big games against like Leinster sort of getting that shoulder and making the crucial line break but obviously like I'm not telling an anybody anything they don't know here but it's far more likely for that one moment of inspiration to come across an 80 minute performance than a 15 or a 20 minute performance I suppose so mm. a huge thing is going to be just him getting time and time in terms of meaningful minutes as well as number of minutes because obviously these experiences for him are great and um to play in the six to play twice in the six nations in his first uh, first three caps really is something because we normally see it take a little bit longer to make a Six Nations breakthrough compared to the autumn or the uh, summer just by the nature of the fixture. So it's great that he has got these two Six Nations appearances, but just, I suppose, through circumstance more than anything else, they've both come at a time when Ireland have been leading by whatever it is, 30-odd points. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which, uh, which maybe, as you say, isn't really ideal in terms of his development. Richard, just before we leave the Ireland game behind, then 
the performance in general, obviously, we've talked about how the game descended into something of uh, something of a farce. I think Michael Sadler described it as in uh, one of his post game comment pieces. But Andy Farrell still said that there's plenty to take from the game. Do you think that really means uh, plenty of things Ireland can improve on? Yeah, I think that's what he exactly means. Um, it's difficult. I mean, I remember when Ulster were playing Zebra, Ulster, Ulster's performance. I mean, and I mean, I know the game was meaningless at that stage too, um, from a point of view of where they were going to finish in the table and all the rest of it. But they really struggled against thirteen players, and I thought Ireland were inaccurate. They were sloppy at times. They ended up giving away giving away more penalties than Italy did in the entire game. Okay, the one penalty that Italy did give away, it was pretty costly for them, um, but. It was a bit of white line fever. We were talking about Mike passing the ball. I think a few players went for glory, um, thinking it's going to be easy now against 13 players. And it was disappointing that, and I know it's you talk about structure and, and, and going through things, and it maybe is difficult when you when, when you are trying to play against 13 players, but they should have put 70 points on Italy, um, with all due respect to the Italians, instead of 57. Um, okay, you can only get five match points out of it, job done. You've helped your points difference anyway in case things do tighten up in the last two rounds of the competition and, and maybe France are beaten somewhere the week. Maybe can't see it. But I, I just thought the performance, I suppose it was one of those, it was a case of, was it, were they going through the motions? But there'll be a few things that Andy will go through with them and, and kind of talk to them in this situation, would you have done something different and, and why did you go for that? And why did you not maybe try and play the ball out more to create more space where you would have a three-man overlap, which you were going to have against five backs. Um, so I know we're talking about they won the game easily and they, and they got the job done, but it, it, it wasn't a great performance at the end of the day, in my opinion, anyway. Yes, improvements, no doubt, required uh, for the game against England, uh, which is not this weekend. It's a down week in the Six Nations, of course, but Ulster are back in action against Cardiff on Friday evening at uh, 7.35. Now, Stuart Martin had asked who might Ireland get back or who might Ulster get back. And as we said a little while ago, we now know that that is Balakun, Henderson, Hume and Timoney, John Cooney's back from injury as well. Now, the so Ulster just without Herring, Lowry and Treadwell, uh, who, as we say, are remaining in training with, uh, with Ireland. Johnny, what do you see then? It's Well, judging by those players coming back, it's going to be a fairly strong... Ulster team going out there looking for five points. Yeah, absolutely. And um, obviously Leinster having won last week whenever Ulster were idle means that there is that uh, gap now at the top of the league, which Ulster are going to be looking to uh, looking to close, certainly on Friday before Leinster play again themselves this weekend. We've talked about this before in the podcast, but this is a massive run of fixtures, not least because obviously Ulster-Leinster is is next week, but Ulster now have seven games in the next eight weeks at the very least. So while this has been a sort of disjointed and disrupted period of the season through six nations and whatever, then I guess now is the end of that, even though the Ireland players aren't back in. So results are going to be imperative. You know, we talked about um, the Dragons game and that sort of, debate about whether it was how acceptable it was to come back with four points rather than five and personally I still think four points was a good result but yeah I think you're at the point now where it's like it's it's going to be all about 
match points and the jostling jostling for position because you look at that league table and it hasn't had a sort of complete look to it just with all the postponements and stuff for a long time. But now the teams are starting to catch up on their matches. It really does bring home just how close it is in that top four. Obviously, Ulster um, being in second at the minute, but, you know, Munster have a game in hand. Glasgow are right there as well. So it's a hugely, hugely important time in the season because the difference between, you know, we all know whether it's between playing at home and playing away in uh, the playoffs in this competition. And it's really going to be over the next, say, six weeks, when we're, I think we're going to have a much better idea of who's in pole position to be in that top two. I think also the South African sides are now starting to show what their real potential is as well. Jonathan, I mean, we, we've, we've seen them in derby games, but um, if you look at the results last weekend, they certainly are. I mean, yes, some of them are playing weaker opposition, but I think the South African sides are going to bring exactly what we thought they were going to bring to the table going forward. Yeah, and it's going to be interesting because obviously Sharks are now up into that uh, playoff spot, but like, I think the Stormers are going to be looking at that. The Bulls, basically the three of them that aren't the Lions, are going to be looking at at it as a realistic possibility of, if not getting into the top four, then certainly getting into that top eight. And I think it it is there for the three of them. And as you say, it's going to be really interesting to see them now try. And I know they, uh, they did play last week, but transitioning back into playing against other teams rather than playing each other, like you say. Richard Johnny talks there about how just how how tight it all is in the table. Leinster four points ahead of Ulster, Glasgow just a further point behind, Monster five behind Ulster, but also with a game in hand. And and this really important month that begins on Friday night with a home to Cardiff and home to Leinster, and then um away around the end of the month in South Africa to the Stormers and the Bulls. What do you think the target will be for Ulster from that block of four games before the, the Toulouse games? Ooh. It's a devilishly difficult question, guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Johnny, for your thanks for your support there, Johnny. Um, I think you'll want to be you want to be targeting Friday night's game as a it's a home it's a home game. It's a you have to win it. You have to beat Leinster the week a week later. The two South African games. I'm worried about the South African sides now, especially on their home patches um, and uh, how strong they will be. Um, and Ulster, I think if you could get 16 points out of the 20, I would be, uh, I would be happy with that. Yeah, that would be my prediction. <laughs> Six. I would think if you could, if you could take 16 points out of the 20, and one of them has to be a, a it's a must win against Leinster. Yeah, absolutely. And Johnny, to hone in on this weekend's game, obviously Cardiff right down in 12th position, although they've only played seven matches compared to 11 for uh, for quite a lot of the teams. And But it is a it's a, a, a Cardiff team that beat Leinster not so long ago. How much of a challenge do you think you're, they're going to present? Well, that's it, because you're looking at their position in the table, but they've only played 10 games in total this season compared to 15 for Ulster. So that's, you know, that's a sizable, sizable difference. I think it probably is a good time to play them during this window. Um, obviously it didn't work out that way for, uh, for Leinster, obviously, but um, 
No. <laughs> I think at home, and given the number of players that Ulster have got back, the quality of players that Ulster have got back, yeah. and even the potential for guys like John Cooney and Jordy Murphy to maybe feature as well, like Ulster should have a, ve- a more than decent team. And um, should the weather play ball this week, <laughs> then I think it is five points that you're looking at. Yeah. We'll keep our fingers crossed for that. Before we go, Richard, we uh, should, as always, note that Ireland under 20s continued their charge towards the Grand Slam with a 29-12 win over Italy and always plenty of uh, Ulster players involved with them. This week, there were four starters, McCormick, McNabney, Crothers all started again, and they were joined by Jude Jude Postlethwaite, who actually wasn't even in the squad before that, but was called up and uh, straight into the starting team. McNamee, Hanlon and McLaughlin all on the bench, but uh, Jude put in a, a, a good performance and not one that will be a surprise because uh, he also stood out at, at school's level and um, looks to have a lot of potential. Yeah, no, and you, you kind of focused on him a bit from the, I was on with you two weeks ago and we were talking about him. So I did when he was named in the, in the side, I kind of asked him a look at this fella. And yeah, he did. I mean, Ireland struggled a wee bit against Italy. And I think you've got to remember that the Italy under 20s are a very different um, side from the the senior counterparts for obvious reasons, but they always traditionally do better at under 20 level and they had beaten England two weeks before. Um, so it, it was um, it was a it was a tough enough encounter for Ireland. Italy really got amongst them. I think they were a bit inaccurate, but once they once they got some rhythm going, Ireland Ireland inevitably came out on top. Um, and possibly with um, he looked good, his ball distribution was good, his positioning was good. Um, he showed, I think it was twice I saw him with a bit of nice bit of footwork to break through. And um, yeah, he he um, you would be you would be buoyed by his performance in that and um, for him progressing forward with Ulster um, in the future. Ireland, they're looking good for a Grand Slam. It's England next for them too, which will be will be interesting. Um, England put forty three points on on Wales to. Uh, bounce back from that what was a surprise defeat against the Italians, obviously. But um, as I said, it, it, it was a potential banana skin in a way. You didn't ex- you didn't expect Ireland to, to lose. I would have liked to have seen them play better, but I think the, the Italians made it made it difficult for them. And the Grand Slam. Center, sorry. No, no. Do we think the centre is going to be the position at Ulster where we see the first Nusifora enforced moving of pieces on the chessboard? Yeah. Like, could... Stuart McCluskey has a three-year contract. James Hume's an Irish international. Stuart Moore, Luke Marshall, hopefully to come back at some stage. Postlethwaite pushing through. Yep. Moxham's played a bit of centre. Trying to make sure I didn't forget anybody there, but yeah, I'm trying to. Yeah. Basically, that's an awful lot of talent for uh, for two positions. If if hypothetically speaking, a year down the line. Hume's continued his progression. Murr's continued his progression. Postlethwaite's continued his progression. Yeah. You know, if that was the Leinster back row as an example, other provinces would be looking at that being like, we should be looking to pick up one of those guys because yeah. only two of them, realistically, at a, at a push, three of them in a match day 23 um, are going to feature week to week. Yeah, that's a fair point. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good point, Jonathan. And I suppose it, it is something that, we have seen 
Irish rugby trying to do. Um, yeah. Yeah. An interesting Possibly. one. That we'll be able to look at before we go as well. I almost forgot just before we started recording, literally as we pressed record, we had news through from Ulster that City of Armagh's Shea O'Brien has signed a one-year development contract with Ulster. He's a 22-year-old fullback and was the club player of the year in 1920. Uh, not 1920 as in 102, <laughs> but uh, the 1920 season. He's looking well for um, the club player of the year 102 years ago. Uh, do we know? Have we seen much of him? I remember seeing him before I moved across to England um, playing with Armagh and, and I would have seen him at school school's level. He was a handy player and he was one of those ones that kind of caught your eye and you kind of went, oh, there's a talented player. You know the way that you, you, you do see one or two players who stand out that bit more. And uh, I think I think what's important, the message here is that there are other routes into the professional game um, than, the, than what would traditionally have been seen as, this, as the school system in Ulster. And I think that that will send a lot of encouraging messages out to other young, talented rugby players out there in Ulster. But yeah, it'll be good to see how he does um, making the step up to this level. Yeah. I think that's it for sure because you look at you know Balakun is an international, um, yeah. Bradley Roberts is an international. Not the same story as such, but like Andy Wark is yeah. Ulster's or is probably Ulster's first choice loose head at the minute. So there is, and that's before you even take into account the guys from other provinces. There is a real uh, level of diversity in the pathways. Even Dan Soper on the coaching ticket, a level of diversity in the pathways that people have come to Ulster. So it's always good to see that continue, I think. Yeah, absolutely. A big, uh, another big boost for the club game. Richard, before the time runs out in our call, I know you wanted time to squeeze in uh, Donald's second question, which was with so many Northampton players, he says, featuring in the England team these days, what colour of jersey will you be wearing, Richard, in two weekends' time? And it was interesting to note that the only part of the premise of that question that you contested was that he just got your club wrong. <laughs> Not that you're going yeah, to be supporting I kind of, England, I kind of thought, I mean, I mean, I'm spoiled for choice over here. There's no doubt about it. But, I mean, I haven't got a Northampton shirt, nor have I got a Hardicombe shirt. And as you guys can see, on behind, <laughs> on the, hanging on the wall behind me is an Ireland shirt signed from uh, a Wales game in 2002. I'm not going to do you a tour of the house. If you take you outside there, there's the Ulster shirt from the European Cup final <laughs> hanging on that wall. There's the photograph hanging on the other wall. There's my wife's Irish jersey is hanging downstairs on another <laughs> wall. I will be ar- I will be armed in my Irish. If I don't go to Twickenham, I might still go to Twickenham, but I will be armed in my Irish jersey. My children will be dressed in their Irish jerseys. We will mount an invasion on the club at Hastings. We have flags and everything ready to go. I will be supporting Ireland against England. There is absolutely no question of my loyalty. I can assure you. <laughs> An impassioned response. Hampton's team over right here. <laughs> yeah, she does have a Northampton Saints mug. So, oh, as as one uh, loyalty question is answered, another one begins. And uh, Jonathan, I'm sure the listeners will be bringing you over hot coals in, in the weeks to come. So that's all we have time for for this week. So I should let maybe you maybe do the sign off, Richard. But we're here now from Richard Mulligan, Jonathan Bradley, and myself, Gareth. Thanks very much for listening. See you, folks.